time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War, episode 254, Operation Ajax, part something. Something. Can, can I just say yeah. real quick, I know you know this because you've probably read on ahead and you've already I read. know you know I know this. You, wow, that, that got meta real quick. The point is... I don't know what you know, so there's a part of me, and I wonder if the listeners feel the same way. How do we go from the Americans going, no, Britain, bad Britain, bad Britain, work something out, 50-50 something to, tell you what, tell you what, we're going to take them down for you. I just Anyway, I, that's a hell of a story arc, and I am super excited. I know we won't get to it tonight, but I'm like, how do you make that switch? But anyway, that's why history is cool. Well, it was a change of administration for a start. That that will do. Truman's it. out. Yeah. Eisenhower's in. Yes. Um, but yeah. also, as we'll see, the uh, it was you know mostly um, uh, he's gonna he's you know the oil's gonna end up in the hands of the communists. Can't well, have, we can't have that. Can't, can't have that. Can't have the no. the communists getting their hands on Iranian oil. We need to do something about that. Yes, yeah. on patriotic oil. Yeah. Okay, sorry. So at the end of our last episode, uh, this American uh, undersecretary for Middle East and stuff, George mm-hmm. McGee, tries to convince the British Several to do a 50-50 deal. He says a 50-50 deal has an aura of fairness understandable to the ordinary man. The British were like, fuck <laughs> you and the horse you rode in on. And so it happens. The Shah signs the nationalization of the oil industry into law. Mossadegh is prime minister. Yeah. And it seems like for a brief moment, the British prime minister, Attlee, Clement Attlee, Labor prime minister, seemed kind of ready to compromise. Yeah. said in the last episode that his outgoing foreign minister, Ernie Bevan, said, listen, we can't really complain <laughs> about nationalization when we're nationalizing our own fucking not, industries. Not cool, man. Not cool. Yeah. And Attlee had, you know, been responsible for all of that. He was prime minister when they were nationalising all of these industries in yeah. Britain. Yeah, he helped draft the And at the one plans. cabinet meeting... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, he was the dude. Yeah. At one cabinet meeting, he suggested that <laughs> Britain might make a public statement accepting nationalisation of right. the Iranian oil ind- industry, right. giving Mossadegh an opportunity to save face. And then arranging some sort of complicated deal under which they'd continue to be able to make money out of the oil industry. But his deputy, Herbert Morrison, foreign minister, who we've talked about before, Uh basically was. uh, (laughs) Fuck you. Sorry. Infuriated. Yes. uh, About this because he was. His girlfriend was dead. (laughs) But that's what gets me about this. The British have no other, and I guess guess it does make sense. We just explained why. But the British have no other response than fuck you. That's pretty much what they're doing. So at least Attlee was like, well, can't we just, you know, play the game behind backroom politics? We'll find a way. But they're not even 
Morrison's not even willing to let Mossadegh save face in Atlee's idea. So Atlee is like, again, he's going to be, he's going to be, I don't know if it's outvoted or whatever by his cabinet, but his idea is not going to go anywhere. Morrison ob- objects to it, and it, I think it gets killed right there in that discussion. So now we're back to square one. Well, Morrison, part of Morrison's argument, and this is what I've said on the last show, and, I, and I've been saying it for decades, mm-hmm. his argument was, if they gave Iran any concessions, it would set what he called an intolerable precedent right. and encourage nationalists everywhere. Yeah. You can't have that. You can't have <laughs> people determining their own course of action yeah. in their own countries. Yes. What would but, the world come to? But you know what you also can't stop? You can't stop people going, you know what? We've been pushed around for over a century. Our backs are against the wall. We don't have bathrooms. We don't have the basic necessities. While you people are having someone work on your lawns in my fucking country. Nationalism comes out of out of many things, but certainly desperation. And the, the English, the British aren't giving doing anything to ease that desperation. So nationalism is not going anywhere. In fact, it's going to get a lot worse. But I think they're like you, like you said earlier, I think the British are trying to kill it in the early stages. Yeah. Like <clears throat> this, this, you know, I said this in the last episode and I'll keep saying it <clears throat> because I think it's one of the cornerstones of understanding um, 20th century history mm-hmm. and 19th century history. This idea that the, the the biggest fear that the elites in the West had about communism and nationalism mm-hmm. was that if it succeeded anywhere, everyone else would want some. Right. And you, they could not allow that to happen. As I said in the last episode, that's why the British, uh, the European monarchs, sorry, had to crush the French Revolution. Yeah. Because if it succeeded, their own people would want some. And, right. you know, that was a threat, direct threat to their lives and their, yeah. their money and their power. Same thing with the capitalists, the rich capitalists in exactly. the West in the 20th century. Yes. If socialism was to succeed anywhere, And by succeed, I don't mean just take power, but was able to restructure the economy, focus on increasing levels of economic equality Mm -hmm. um, and and political power, which was the, you know, the sort of vision of socialism was for people to wrest control, the the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? right, for the people to have control of the decisions, the political decisions, the economic decisions in the country. That was the vision for uh, socialism and communism as the advanced stages of that. So they needed to be attacked, they needed to be crushed, they needed to be demonised because if it was successful, uh, you know, people in the West would go, oh, why can't we get some of that? And that's a threat to the, the, the rich elite and the... And the 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 religious folks, the you know the churches in the right. West, because you know uh, churches were seen as just another means of control. Yeah. So they had to crush it, and Herbert Morrison basically said that if these fucking brown <laughs> motherfuckers get away with this, it'll be the beginning of the end. It's for exactly colonialism right. everywhere. Yeah. And who <laughs> wants that? Who wants that? So Atlee eventually gave in. And they sent a cable to their ambassador, Franks, in Washington, directing him to tell Dean Acheson that, quote, 
Persian oil is of vital importance to our economy and that we regard it. See, they said Persian, not Iranian. Yes. The Shah had asked them back in the 30s to call it Iran and Iranians. They're like, fuck you, we'll call it what we want to call it. (laughs) Persian oil is of vital importance to our economy and that we regard it as essential to do everything possible to prevent the Persians from getting away with a breach of their contractual obligations. Mm, that's that's more the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. Because like like we said, uh, the British are doing nothing to help the locals. Uh, they're living in abject poverty. They could be doing better, but that's the whole point is to make money. Um, so, uh, and, and again, bringing back the Americans, uh, Secretary of State Atchison, certainly did believe that Mossadegh, and this is where it gets more complicated. This is where it's no longer between the British, the Iranians, and the oil. Atchison believes that Mossadegh isn't just someone who is somehow caught a wave, a nationalistic wave for his own country. Atchison's looking around and he's really thinking that, that like we were just saying a second ago, nationalism, people wanting better, wanting their gov- wanting more from their governments, aren't simply willing to just sit around and bitch anymore. They actually might start to resist. They might take up arms. Who knows? But Atchison's looking around the Middle East and he's going, you know, I'm starting to see a pattern here. I- Iran and Mossadegh, that's just one of the many examples. And so we don't need this sweeping across the Middle East. But Atchison's really starting to get nervous about a regional problem versus just this one country. It's getting out of hand and he's got Truman's ear. Yeah, that's part of it, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure. And also part of it is, well, the U.S. are like, well, we're paying the Saudis 50%. Why should you get away yeah. with paying less? That's that, a good Fuck point. that bullshit. That's a good point. You know? Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind that the U.S. was still trying to break the U.K.'s global power Yeah. at this point. They're still trying to force the dismantling of the British Empire. So they're like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. Just give we up the it. money. You do it. So messages are flying backwards and forwards between Washington and London during the middle of 1951. They, they, they can't get on the same page for how they're going to deal with Mossadegh in Iran. And on the 18th of May, the State Department, the US State Department, issued a public statement declaring that Americans, quote, fully recognise the sovereign rights of Iran and sympathise with Iran's desire that increased benefits accrue to that country from the development of its petroleum. Yeah, I think it's pronounced development of its, pause, petroleum. But no, you're absolutely right. And so the Americans are now just coming out saying, you know, Quit being a dick, London. Give them some more money of that sweet, sweet cash. And again, so now, as opposed to just private meetings in Washington, now it's a public statement. The British are not going to like this. No. Morrison was uh, furious. (laughs) He uh, said in a cable to Ambassador Franks that he was really rather annoyed at the American attitude of relative indifference to a situation which may be most grave to us all. Mm. I don't think they were indifferent. I think they were like, no, <laughs> fucking, you know, do a deal. Right. Because you're putting the whole, you're turning the whole place into a tinderbox by exactly. your intransigence. Yes. Atlee uh, got the Anglo-Iranian oil company to send a delegation of officials led by the company's deputy chairman, Basil Jackson. <laughs> Uh, to Tehran for negotiations. Hello, Basil Jackson (laughs) here. Basil, hello. So this this group of officials from Anglo-Iranian 
fly to Tehran. Yes. Mossadegh welcomes them by arranging for Iranian gendarmes to take over the Anglo-Iranian office in the town of Kermanshah on the day they arrive. Yeah. So he basically sends in, the, yeah. sends in the police to just start taking over their offices right. when they're coming over to try and negotiate. Yeah, this is how I negotiate. If I could real quick, I wrote Mossadegh put out the welcome mat. Actually, it was more like a steamroller. And that's exactly it. They, they literally seized this office Why these guys on the same day these guys show up. Mossadegh is letting you know where he stands. Has he ever not let you know? Yeah, yeah right. Welcome, welcome. Take a seat. Hold on a second. Yes, can you just uh, break down that door and yeah, stop pi- them from shredding all the paperwork? Thank you. Pistol's oh, drawn. Well, yeah. The- yeah, yeah. Welcome. What do you want to talk about? Welcome. I'm sorry. The U.S. Ambassador Grady then restated the American position in the Wall Street Journal. He said, since nationalisation is an accomplished fact, it would be wise for Britain to adopt a conciliatory attitude. Mossadegh's National Front Party is the closest thing to a moderate and stable political element in the national parliament. So remember that two years later when the U.S. overthrow his government, claiming that they're extreme communist uh, nutjobs. So they're no longer moderate and a stable political element. Okay, no, just just wanted to check. Sure. No, no, that was so (laughs) 1951 when we said that. What have you done for me lately? Yeah. Yeah. And so the Iranians decide that turning it up to 11 by sending in guys with guns is not enough. The Iranian representative says during this meeting, we are willing to talk, provided the visitors from London accepted the nationalization of the former company was a done deal. But as you can imagine, imagine uh, Sir Basil, I don't know if he was a sir, uh, Basil Jackson refused, saying that Iran was bound by the 1933 accord and it had a 60-year term. That is not up. But... Jackson is not coming empty-handed. He does have a counteroffer. He goes, look, look, this, this is getting way out of hand. We will pay you 10 million pounds, and we will give you 3 million pounds every month while we negotiate, while we try to figure out what's going on. Now, Mossadegh's probably thinking really quickly, well, one, if you can afford to pay us 3 million pounds each month, you could have been already doing that. So that's bullshit. Um, but then Jackson has another idea that I, I guess maybe they thought it was tricky or clever or whatever, but I think the Iranians see through it pretty quickly. So Jackson comes up and he says, look, how about this? How about we create a company where we transfer the assets from the oil cells to a, to a new company that we're going to set up? And We'll control it. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of everything. Uh, but the but the Iranians figured out this would cancel out the entire idea of nationalizing the um, the the oil company. As it was put, uh, I think someone said the British can be flexible in profits, administration, or partnership, but not in the issue of control. So again, the Iranians saw this. I don't know if it's clever, but it's sort of, I think the British thought it was clever. This idea is like, no, we'll, we'll, you'll take the company. That's fine. But all the money will go to this one new entity that we're about to create, and we will control that. How's that? Mossadegh or whoever said, fuck you. So again, they're getting nowhere. So in terms of control, on June 20th, 1951, Mossadegh appoints Mehdi Bazagan. Mm-hmm 
as the first managing director of the National Iranian Oil Company. Bazargan was an Iranian um, engineer. He had studied in France. He was the head of the first engineering department at the University of Tehran. Nice. And interestingly enough, I read up on his biography. He um, later on goes on to co-found the liberation movement of Iran in 1961, right. which was similar to Mossadegh's National Front. This is after the US have overthrown Mossadegh and installed the Shah. Right. Um, and then... He, after the 1979 revolution, mm-hmm. Bazargan is appointed prime minister of Iran by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Wow. But he resigned along with his cabinet after the US embassy takeover and the hostage situation there. Right. Um, and sort of protest against that and his inability to free the hostages. So he goes on and has a, a sort of long political career, but. In 1951, he is uh, the first guy to run the National Iranian Oil Company. Cool. Flew immediately to Abadan, yeah. where the British were still running the refinery. Walks yeah. in and declares himself <laughs> the new boss. Right. I'm in charge. I'm in charge now. And right. his first order was that the captains of the British tankers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. had to provide him with receipts before they sailed. He wanted a right. he wanted documentation of the amount of oil they were carrying, so he could keep track of how yeah. much was being exported. Makes sense. The British yeah. were like, "No fucking way!" <laughs> they believed that the oil was the property of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. Yeah. They just they flat out refused yeah. the the Thank fact you. that it had been nationalized. The right. tanker captains refused to provide the receipts. Yes. So, but Bazargan threatened to have the general manager of AIOC, a guy called Eric Drake, arrested for sabotage. Damn. That carried a death penalty Damn. under a bill that was pending in the Majlis. Right. Um, and Ambassador Shepard told Drake that he yeah. should get out he, of the country. Why you he can't. did. Yeah. Started running the company from an office in Iraq. Right. And continued to refuse. Yeah. to provide the company with receipts for yeah, what receipts. the oil tankers were carrying. Yes. When the Iranians kept insisting, Sir William Frazier mm-hmm. issued an order from London, the head of the AIOC. Right. Tanker captains were to pump back all the oil in their holds oh. and leave Abadan empty. So at that point, Iran yeah. had been the world's fourth largest oil exporter. Right. But... More importantly, they were supplying 90% of Europe's petroleum. Damn. They didn't own any of the tankers. Oh, fuck. They just owned the oil. So he said, fuck you. (laughs) We're going to take our tankers and go home. And they, you know, the Iranians couldn't export any of the oil. So now they have all the oil. Yes. But they can't actually transport it anywhere. Sir William Fraser said, when they need money, they will come crawling to us on their bellies. Oh, so they think they've got them right where they want them. So um, just to make it even worse, the British press 
gets involved, and they trash Mossadegh. The London Times, The Economist writes, no Persian with any common sense really believes that the Anglo-Iranian oil company is responsible for the horrifying poverty of the masses. No one believes that. That's crazy. The uh, the Observer said called Mossadegh a Robespierre fanatic and a tragic Frankenstein who was obsessed with one xenophobic idea. So, they leave the oil there. No one's making any money. The British press is getting involved. This is getting intense really, really quick. So, yeah, it's interesting when you look at the British media from this period. This is the Daily Telegraph mm-hmm. in London, 30th of April, 1951. Right. Um, front page, they're going on about uh, Persian decision on oil today. Mm. And, you know, it it uh, says um, – Notice as first step insuperable difficulties. It is naturally assumed that the appointment of a commission to evict the Anglo-Iranian oil company does not imply the use of force. The next step will probably be some some form of notice. On the practical aspect of immediate expropriation, insuperable difficulties obviously arise. An absolute minimum of 1,500 technically qualified employees, refinery and distillation experts, chemists, geologists, engineers, and other specialists, Mm -hmm. a staff built up over many years, would have to be replaced. Persia is completely without oil experts. Even nationals who have profited from the company's university schemes have shown no interest in oil, but have preferred training and administrative training. There is one Persian geologist now being trained at the company's expense in the United Kingdom. Oh, God. Goes on to say, no tankers, invitation to customers. The Persian government at present owes up to seven months' salary to its civil servants as well as army and navy pay. Official corruption in which the public and the chief sufferers is consequently rampant. The fact that they're not getting paid by the oil company a fair share has got nothing to do with how little people are getting paid. It's all official corruption. Yeah. The Persian oil industry is dependent on the huge British tanker fleet. This cannot be expropriated or nationalised, nor can the company's 50% holding in the Kuwait oil company, the 23% holding in the Iraq petroleum company, or the large holding in the Burma oil company. Nevertheless, and without transport, the Persian government in Article 7 of the bill now passed invites all former buyers of oil to continue buying but as customers of the government. Mm. Observers believe the issues now involved in the Persian oil fields may affect the whole of the oil industry in the Middle East. In Persia, not only the British government's interest, but the security of more than 3,000 Britons is involved by this development. Although the strike in the Abadan area ended last week, all of the dangerous elements have not been removed. The leaders of the National Front, of which Dr Mossadegh is head, met tonight to draft the new Prime Minister's message to the nation. At the meeting, Dr Mossadegh was given full powers to choose his ministers from among personalities he likes outside and inside the party. Mossadegh said he had accepted the premiership only to finish the oil question and get rid of all foreigners. Damn. He is extremely anti-foreigner to the extent of refusing to shake hands with foreign diplomats. He never accepts an embassy invitation. Often called the Gandhi of Persia, he has gained popularity by this passive resistance to foreigners. He hates Russia and the Russians hate him. Right. So th- Dr. Mossadegh is an aspirin which relieves pain but never kills it, said a communist leader. <laughs> 
as we'll see, the Tudor party didn't like him either. But, you know, they say he's extremely anti-foreigner. Now, according to George McGee, I read interviews with George McGee from later in life, he loved Mossadegh, thought he was fabulous, spent a lot of time with him, spent over 80 hours in conversations with him. When Mossadegh goes to the US later on, he took him to his farm in Virginia and he stayed there for a couple of days. Nice. And, you know, he, he thought he was the thought he was knees. wonderful. He really loved yeah. Mossadegh. So, but like this is the, you know, the British uh, media's depiction of him as anti-foreigner, refusing right. to Radical. shake hands, the demonization yes. of yes. the enemy, you know. This is always goes on in mm-hmm. the Western media when they're, you know, trying to paint their enemies to be villains. Exactly. Because it's easier to, to yeah. get the public on board if you can paint the other side to be crazy, corrupt, yeah. evil villains. And it doesn't matter if there's no, any truth to no, it. It's no, just, it's, you know, that's how the game works. something bad happens to them, there's no sympathy, there's no outcry, there's no real intense investigation. Yeah. So you take everything Cam just said, all the negative press that's coming out of London, now compare that to what the American press is saying. The Washington Post says that most Iranians saw the oil company as a thriving state within a stricken state as a symbol of their poverty. The New York Times took it to 11 by saying that many Middle East specialists considered Mossadegh a liberator comparable to, wait for it, Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. It, it doesn't get any higher than that in America. So here the American papers are blowing him up to the skies. The British newspapers are trashing him, but either way, he's just, you know, he's just there doing his thing. But the point is they do have a problem now because the oil is not going out. So there were a few uh, senior British politicians, though, who criticised the way their country were handling the whole right. affair. So there you go. I've admitted it publicly. Not all British are absolute cunts all of the time. <laughs> all the time. Uh, some British diplomats were sending... Contrary reports to the yes. Foreign Office, there was a Labor attaché uh, in Tehran filed a cable describing conditions at Abadan as deplorable. Wow. Saying the workers there lived in cottages made of mud bricks with no electricity, with outside water supply, sorry, without outside water supply and sanitary arrangements. In other words, in veritable slums. Damn. Yeah. So... They, 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 know. Aviv, they know. Yeah, sorry. In Tel Aviv, a British minister forwarded an article from the Jerusalem Post that uh, convinced him, he said, that Anglo-Iranian deserved what happened. It was written by an Israeli who had spent several years working at Abadan alongside Iranians mm-hmm. that he described as the poorest creatures on earth. They lived during the seven hot months of the year under the trees in winter times, these masses moved into big halls built by the company, housing up to three to four thousand people without walls of partition between them. Jesus. Each family occupied the space of a blanket. There were no lavatories. Right. That's insane. Um, it's like a just a big giant open room and you're all just thrown in there like pigs, swine, animals, whatever. Apparently, whenever he tried to have debates with the British about how they were treating the Persians, the answer was usually, we English have had hundreds of years of experience on how to treat the natives. Socialism is all right back home, but out here you have to be the master. 
Damn, that's, that's according to the Israeli guy. Oh, oh uh, I, I, not that I can match that, but I did want to put, um, uh, excuse me, not Lord Earl Mountbatten. Uh, he, you know, he's, he, he was a big hero in World War II. Uh, he screwed up some things, but didn't never pay the price for it. So, anyways, he tells the people that he tells his higher ups at the Admiralty that instead of listening to the notoriously bellicose Herbert Morrison's advice on how to cow these insolent natives. Britain should realize that economic and military threats could only make things worse. So the point is, if even Mountbatten is going, hey, you got to ease up on the darkies, you know you're going way too fucking far because he was not certainly a man of equality. But even he's going, dude, dude, not good. Not, and, 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 and a lot of this is he's putting at Morrison's feet. That's just how. So there does seem to be some. I won't go too far. Debate within British society about you know yeah some people we're we're, we're we deserve everything that we get because we uh, we we have the technology and some people are going you're treating them horribly how can you possibly be surprised that they're finally standing up to you so there is some tension in London when you said Earl Mountbatten never paid the price didn't his fishing boat get blown up well, by the IRA that, yes, in 1979 no, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the, no he absolutely did um, don't mess with the fucking <laughs> Irish but uh, no the uh, Dieppe raid uh, fucked it up but anyways yeah so but he, even someone like him is going yeah no not good not good yeah now, Mossadegh met with the British technicians and managers at the refinery. Yeah. He said they were welcome to stay, would be treated well. You know, this this article I read before, uh, the British article was saying, well, they don't have anyone who knows how to run anything in Iran. Why? He was like, hey, listen, you can all, yeah, because they didn't train anyone else. <laughs> He's like, you can all stay, you can all work, you'll be treated well. We don't have any You're gripes safe. with you. We just want to yeah. own a run it. But Fraser ordered them all to leave Iran immediately. Damn. So the next step was the the Iranians took control of the other offices. They'd taken the office in Kermanshah. They had to take over the office in Abadan and Tehran, which they did in the last days of June. The head of the Abadan office had moved all of his sensitive papers to the local local British consulate where the Iranians couldn't get in because of diplomatic rules. But the head of the Tehran office... Wasn't as quick. When the Iranians <laughs> arrived, they searched his home. They found lots of files there, including some he was burning in the fireplace. God. And the uh, for, Iran uh, and the uh, fuck <laughs> and Iran's foreign ministry summarized what they had found in the documents. Right. They said, even though a lot of documents have been destroyed, enough were left behind to make it easy for Mossadegh to prove that AIOC had interfered in all aspects of Iranian political life. The documents revealed that the company had influenced senators, Marjali's deputies and former cabinet ministers, and that those who had opposed it had been subtly forced out of office. Damn. Damn. So... So it's right there. It's all the, enough, even though we all know what's going on, there's literally a paper trail proving that the British have been, at almost every level, interfering, making sure everything goes their way. And again, they're saying, we're not responsible for your poverty. Well, here's some proof that you are certainly a big part of why we are all poor. And, and it's, it's all right there in black and white in, in the paper. There was uh, they had evidence that newspapers in Iran had been paid to publish articles 
saying that the National Front's leaders were actually stooges of the AIOC. Wow. There was evidence that a former Prime Minister, Ali Mansour, had begged the AIOC to allow him to remain in office. Let me stay. Promising to appoint a new finance minister that was more agreeable to the company. Yeah. Another set of letters revealed that the AIOC had helped Baram Sharog to become director of Iran's radio and propaganda department and then uh, sent him on a trip to London yeah. where he had been recruited to serve AIOC's interests. There were also directives and reports on influencing different guilds through the mayor of Tehran to rise against uh, the people that were supporting the National Front. Damn. And, of course, Mossadegh made all of these documents public. <laughs> the British, the AIOC had been running Iran for decades, yes. completely corrupt. Literally. And he, one news commentator wrote in a Tehran paper, now that the curtain is lifted and the real identity of traders posing as newspaper men, Marjli's deputies, governors and even prime ministers is laid bare, laid bare, these men should be riddled with bullets and their carcasses thrown to the dogs. Can I just say something real quick? Because I'm glad you read that last part because so far this has been words. This has been, you know, uh, a diplomatic tiff. People get in the room and they they talk. They Even for nine days they talk and they don't agree. And we talked about the British newspapers. We talked about the American newspapers. But now the Iranian newspapers are getting in there. And what starts creeping into their articles death threats. So it's no longer just words. They're like, these people, these are our people, our fellow countrymen, but they should be strung up, they should be shot, they should be disemboweled, whatever. But the point is, this again reminds me of the, the brothers Gracky. It's, it's, it's gone from politics to this is personal to it's time to start busting some heads. So, so the level of tolerance is shrinking and the idea of solving some of these problems through violence is growing. And Truman sees this and he's like, oh my God, I do not need this right now. Yeah, but before we move on to Truman, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, you know, I wanna I wanna just stop and and make the point that we see again here evidence mm -hmm. that the colonial powers, the West, right, had been corrupting this country for decades. Yes. Influencing and buying Politicians, putting politicians in power, yeah. punishing politicians for not getting done what they want, removing them, replacing them, right. in, you know, uh, bribing the media to run stories that would be critical of politicians they didn't like, like Mossadegh and the National Front. Mm -hmm. This, and, you know, this had been going right up until, you know, 1951. <clears throat> you know, this is why I, I'm always skeptical of you know, the the version of history that we get from the Western media and Western governments about Good point. countries that are the enemies of the West. Right. About what's going on. Because we just know too much yeah. about how they've been manipulating us, what we read in the media, and manipulating the media even in those countries. Like if they could, you know, manipulate an Iranian paper paper right. in Tehran to write something negative about the National Front, then that paper gets held up in the West to go, look, <laughs> even their own papers right. say that they're corrupt. Proof. These Proof. are their own people yes. saying they're corrupt. Yeah. 
Jesus you know, and Christ. we don't know at the time that they've paid those papers to say right. those negative things and corrupted the paper and the journalists and the people are on bribes. And But this is just the way it's always been done. And there's no reason to believe it's being done any differently today. Right. Probably when you read better. stuff about yeah, sorry, Hamas, sorry. when right. you read stuff yeah. about Russia, when you, I don't know if you've seen this, but mm. you know we've been doing on the bullshit filler. We've been talking about Ukraine and Putin, and for the last how long has the war been going on now? Nearly two years, right? For the last two years, we keep hearing stories about the Russians are nearly defeated. Oh, Putin's yeah. been ousted oh, yeah. by his own people. He's got cancer. He's right. nearly dead. It's all over. The Ukrainians have turned the tables. They've got a new front that's moving in. In the last two weeks. Most of the stories that I'm reading in the Western media are Russia's probably going to win this. Uh, yeah. Ukraine's on their knees. People are getting tired of funding Ukraine. The Western governments are trying to figure out how they can push for some sort of peace treaty now. Right. Putin's uh, on the front foot. It's like the story's done a complete 180 in the last <laughs> couple of weeks about how the Western media tends to be covering this. He turned it around. It's all been yeah, yeah, bellicose and positive for the last nearly two years. Ah, oh, he overestimated any himself. Yes. Yeah, any day he's falling. Uh, he's uh, losing all of his generals. He's got no men left. He's got no weapons left. He's got no taking, money left. They're taking men out of prisons to fight this war. Yeah. They've got, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, sorry. And now they're like, Hey, he's probably <laughs> going to win this, so we should probably just start to Let's get used to the idea think and about figure out how we yeah. can salvage uh, whatever we can salvage out of this. Exactly. Like it's just bullshit. Like ninety, well, I'm not saying it's all bullshit, but you you can never tell. Like I, when I'm reading stuff about the Israel Gaza war, right? Um, I, you can't believe anything when you're reading about Russia and Ukraine. You can't believe anything that comes out from any side or anywhere because it's. All or nearly all propaganda, nearly all the time from both sides. It's yeah. just a clusterfuck. It, it's you know, it'll be ten years, twenty years, fifty years before we really will know what really happened, if at all. You know, exactly. you know. Yeah. But yeah. often we don't even get to know the stuff. So I just kind of block most of it out. Yeah, you try and figure out broad brush what's going on and. Who did what to whom and why? Right. All we can do is try and understand the reasons these things happen, what yeah. they're really about, why they really happened. Yeah. You know, you but you 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 can't really know what's going on day to day because it's just we just know we we get lied to yes. constantly by all sides. It's yes. just all yeah. lies all the time. Yeah. Um, to believe to take a side in these things. You know, it's just yeah. ridiculous because you never know what's and, the truth ever, nobody, ever. Exactly. And nobody nobody cares or wants me on their side. You, you said earlier that, you know, like when America was trying to grab up as much of the international market because that's what countries do. Same thing with this. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody's spinning. Everybody's lying. Everybody's trying to guide or direct or influence. It's just what humans or, or entities do. And just accept that. Just just. Except and never, ever, ever forget that. So, yeah, back to Truman. Yeah. He called a meeting of the National Security Council. Thank God. And they gave him a report that said that Britain was preparing to invade Iran. Oh, shit. Oh, so it's, it's going to get worse. So McGee, for all of his warnings, 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 has to go back to his boss and go, dude, uh, boss, dude, I tried. They're not listening. And now we're hearing they're making plans. So something bad might happen. 
Grady, the US ambassador, reported that the British were going to try and overthrow Mossadegh, but that he had the support of 95 to 98% of the people. Is that a lot? It sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it is utter folly to try to push him out. Again, in a, a, to get rid of a le- to try to get rid of a leader who has 95% approval rating, you pretty much have to remove the entire government. Oh, there's an idea. Anyway, that's for later. Yeah. As opposed to uh, Joe Biden, who is currently the least popular president in American history at this point in his uh, presidential innings. Yeah. I'm having like. According to the polls, he is the least popular, has the least amount of support of any president ever at this point in his uh, administration. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about the, the, the British might, you know, Try to do something more than just bitch and moan. Ambassador Shepard wrote to London, the moment has come for us to try and get him out so that Iran could once again have a prime minister who is reasonable and friendly rather than rigid and impractical, i.e. do what we want. So, yeah, maybe there are plans being whispered somewhere in London, like, we got to get rid of this guy. Yeah, so here we are. Like he's only been um, prime <laughs> yes. minister for a month. Yeah, you gotta go. And gotta go, baby. Yeah, the the UK have already decided they're going to try and uh, kick him out. Right. So, you know, again, we want to stop and just understand that this mm-hmm. is after World War Two. Remember, World War Two was fought ostensibly, according to the West. Right. To save the world, the free world, from exactly. the evil Nazis <laughs> and the evil Japanese and the evil Italians. Dictators. Who wanted to force their will yes. on the free, freedom-loving peoples of the world. <laughs> and here we are in 1951 where the West is trying to stop the communists from enforcing their will on the freedom-loving peoples of the world. Sure, sure. And here we have the British ostensibly... <laughs> Part of the team, team good guys, white and delights them, who are talking openly about uh, continuing to overthrow the government of a sovereign country and install in a government that's friendlier to their interests and making money. Oh. Like the whole the, the the whole hypocrisy of yes. the fight against communism and the fight against the Nazis and the yes. fight against the Japanese just is like fuck you and the horse you rode in on you're all cunts <laughs> right you're all just as bad as each other capitalist cunts like really yeah yeah, yeah. the more it changes the more it stays the same right yeah so but for, but but Britain has they they've got a cunning plan. On July 5th, they had already taken this issue, if you will, to the International Court of Justice at The Hague. And The Hague, yeah, they, they, they look over the information and they have a, a recommendation. They recommend that Iran allow the oil company to continue functioning as before while you negotiate this. So, yeah, it's getting ugly, but, hey, everybody needs the money. You need the money. You need the money. The world needs the oil. Europe certainly needs its oil. Discuss this, keep talking about it, but while you're doing that, let's run things as they are. But Mossadegh has a tiny problem with that. Yeah. He was uh, like, you don't, he, we, we don't believe that they have any say over this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's got, you know, 
we're, we're, we've got a problem with a private company here. It's not country it, and country. Exactly. You, you handle disputes between two countries that are about to go to war. Heaven forbid they don't do that. Yeah. This is between a country and a, a private company. You literally have, as far as I can tell, uh, and I used to watch L.A. Law, you have no legal standing here. Thank you for your time. The court is empowered to adjudicate only disputes between nations ah. and Iranian officials were yeah. saying that since the 1933 oil accord was a deal between Iran and a private company, yeah. had nothing to do with The Hague. Fuck off. The Iranian minister at The Hague said its recommendation was null and void and an intervention in our internal internal affairs. Yeah. <clears throat> Getting back to the British view on this stuff, though, yeah. I found this thing in a book um, that said officials at the Ministry of Fuel right. in England, this is like, you know, middle of 1951, mm-hmm. wrote a report where they said if Dr. Musadik, Musadik right. resigns or is replaced, it is just possible that we shall be able to get away from outright nationalisation. It would certainly be dangerous to offer greater real control of oil operations in Persia Although something might be done to put more of a Persian facade on the setup, we must right. not forget that the Persians are not so far wrong when they say that all our proposals are, in fact, merely dressing up AIOC control in other clothing. Mm-hmm. Any real concession on this point is impossible. If we reached settlement on Mossadegh's terms, we would jeopardise not only British but also American oil interests throughout the world. Mm. We would destroy prospects of the investments of foreign capital in backward countries. We would strike a fatal blow to international law. We have a duty to stay and use force to protect our (laughs) interests. We must force the Shah to bring down Mossadegh. For queen and country. Uh, For the world. So, again... Yeah, like the this is the Ministry of Fuel, right? In the United Kingdom, basically saying we have to use force. Yeah, don't want to to get rid of Musadik for the good, for for the common messy dick, massive dick, but uh, for uh, massive dick for the for the good of all, except for him. Yes, Uh, yeah, yeah. yes. Don't want and the Iranians and (laughs) the yeah. And the other countries that may want to <laughs> nationalize their interests, which we're also doing, but right. let's, let's, let's not talk about that. You know, no, no. Oh my god! Uh, just like, like uh, seriously, the f- the fucking balls A- on these people. Man. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. The CIA is keeping a close eye on the situation. In a memo, I went and read a whole bunch of CIA memos that right. have been released. Um, around this period. There's a memo dated the 11th of July, 1951, where they basically warned that a close down of Iranian production would send the Iranian government into bankruptcy, which might provide an opportunity for the Soviets and or communist China to come to their aid, both in terms of financial and military support, but also in terms of buying their oil. Right. Which would not be a good thing from the West's perspective. Mm-hmm. They were also concerned that the success of nationalist sentiment, kicking out colonial powers in Iran, would drive the same sentiment in other Near Eastern countries, as they called them. Right. But they also then go to break down this, Iran's role in 
oil in the world, which I thought we should spend a bit of time on just to put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. I said before that they provided about 90% of Europe's oil. Yeah. According to the CIA at the time, Iran accounted for 7% of the West's crude oil, 5.3% of the refined product, but Western Europe got 31% of its oil, its refined oil, sorry, from Iran, mm-hmm. 25% of the UK's domestic oil came from AIOC. Oh, wow. South Asia, which is India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, got 70% of its oil from Iran. Um, And they thought it would take Iraq and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia about a year to make up any loss that they would get from Iran. So there's going to be a year... And it's, you know, it's July here, mm-hmm. so it's summer. They're coming into winter in the Northern Hemisphere yeah. in a few months. They're going to have a winter with a massive cut in the amount of oil that right. they have access yeah. to petroleum products in die. the UK, Western yeah. Europe, and India, you know, where they've obviously got big interests. But there would be 550,000 barrels per day missing from world oil supplies. Wow. Um, the, the, the refineries uh, at the time around the world were fully, well, at full capacity mm-hmm. and were fully committed. All their products were pre-sold. Right. So to lose that kind of a chunk massive. of world oil supply was going to yes. have a massive impact. Yes. They also said, the CIA this is, that the refinery, if it was shut down, would leave about 80,000 Iranians unemployed and the Iranian government would lose about 40% of its revenue. Damn. They also predicted that if Mossadegh tried to attempt a compromise mm-hmm. with the British to mm. keep the oil revenues from drying up, he might be assassinated or removed or replaced with a conservative prime minister, but he would get so much, the the replacement would get so much antagonism from the people that he wouldn't be able to retain control. The whole thing would just collapse. And then the Tudor party that was pro-Soviet, we've mentioned them in previous episodes, would manoeuvre themselves into power. But I want to make this point. Again, Mm -hmm. reading the CIA memos in 1951, there's no suggestion that... Mossadegh himself is pro-Soviet or is a communist. They're worried that if he falls, the communist-friendly party, the Tudor party, might take over. They were also concerned that if the communists took over, the tribes in the south and the west of Iran, where all the oil-producing areas were, might set up an independent state Mm -hmm. and that might allow the British to get back in there. So they're looking at the big picture, but there's another memo I found from the CIA dated July 20th, 1951, where they're talking about a Tudor meeting where they had an informant in the meeting. This is a Tudor party. They say that at the meeting, the topic of discussion was America's weakness in the Korean War, its inability to wage war successfully. Oh, shit. And the prediction that the United Nations troops would be kicked out of Korea by the communists fairly quickly. But they also talked about Mossadegh's antagonism towards the Tudor party and that they were sceptical about his stated intention to legalise the party. They believed at the time that he was a British stooge. They believed the Communist Party in Iran in 1951 believed first that Mossadegh was a British stooge mm-hmm. who was 
on the surface of things, pretending that he hated the British but was really secretly behind the scenes going to do a deal with the British Damn. that would give them more power and more control, um, which is fascinating when we see in future episodes that the US were trying to paint him as a communist stooge. Right. Um, and which the Americans were already doing. There's an American journalist, Joseph Alsop. He was already suggesting that Mossadegh was a communist stooge. I found this article in the Deseret News, 3rd, uh, 3rd of June, 1951, Salt Lake City paper, the Deseret News. Right. Um, it says, a partnership between Britain and the United States to see, the Ara- see that Iranian oil continues to flow westward is absolutely essential, writes Joseph Alsop from London, because without Iran's oil, Western Europe cannot be defended against the Russians. Alsop, however, regards the situation as almost hopeless mm. and observes that it is all the earmarks of a Soviet conspiracy. Mossadegh right. came to power on a crisis caused by a wave of anti-British strikes throughout Iran, he points out, and behind the strikes was agitation by the communist Tudor party. Soviet ambassador Stajakov has, in fact, asserts Alsop, promised Mossadegh that the Soviet Union will not invade Iran if the British do. As a result, Mossadegh, according to Alsop, has taken the intransigent position that no deal whatever will be made with the British. Note it's Mossadegh who's being intransigent, (laughs) not the British who are being intransigent. This Soviet-inspired attitude, Alsop suspects, is designed to shut off Iranian oil to the West. If shut off from Iran's oil, Britain will be reduced to a second-rate power and the American investment in Britain will go down the drain, Alsop believes, by which he means the war loans which need to be paid back. Yeah. Disruptions in the economies of other Western European countries and of India will follow, he thinks, and the Iranian lead will be imitated in Iraq. Damn, he's stringing together a lot of – but anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I got lots of stories about Alsop. He was secretly working for the CIA, of course, at the time. Right. He using his journalistic credentials as cover, and a decade later was advocating for an escalation um, of the war in Vietnam by the U.S. Was Shock. writing his articles, pushing Johnson to escalate the war. Right. There are some great stories about him, though. He was a closeted homosexual, and kept that as a fairly guarded secret all of his life. Richard Helms, Mm. the director of the CIA at one point, called him a scrupulously closeted homosexual. During World War II, he contracted syphilis from his sexual encounters while in Europe, and he he informed George Marshall, Army Chief of Staff, that he contracted syphilis from having sex with men. Marshall refused to pass the information on to Roosevelt because apparently Alsop was close to the Roosevelt family. Right. But Joseph McCarthy found out about it. Here we go. When he was doing his whole Red Scare campaign. Right. Insinuated that Alsop was a homosexual when he was trying to get homosexuals removed from government employment. And... McCarthy, you know, used the implication that he was homosexual to say he was uh, was not healthy and normal. And then in 1957, the KGB photographed him in a hotel room in Moscow having sex with another man who was an agent uh, for the KGB. And um, 
they tried to blackmail him. Right. And instead of allowing himself to be blackmailed, he wrote a detailed account of the incident <laughs> and of the entire history of his sex life. Right. And then uh, wow. gave it to the CIA. Yeah. Um, Here you go. Uh, yeah. Uh, as they, and, and then it got to the FBI. Right. He's like, hey, try and blackmail me now, motherfuckers. I've just told everybody everything. Right. But then J. Edgar Hoover got hold of it and spread the information that he was homosexual through the Eisenhower administration, most of which um, were, were fighting with Allsop. He was, you know, uh, writing articles against the Eisenhower administration. Right. Um, but, of course, Hoover is also thought to have been a closeted homosexual. Mm-hmm. But he was using... Information that this guy was a closeted homosexual hey, to attack him. Don't have to make sense. I have this idea for a film script that I really want to make one day. Right. It's it's about J. Edgar Hoover, uh-huh. Andy Warhol, Leonard Bernstein, and Guy Burgess Ooh. in a hanging out together in a gay bar in Washington in the 1960s. They all just randomly meet at a <laughs> gay bar. Right. These four very prominent closeted homosexuals. And, I, I would um, watch that. That'd be a great conversation. Hilarity, yeah. hilarity and ensues. <laughs> well, so no- Hoover apparently told yeah, go ahead. Hoover told Lyndon Johnson about right. um, Allsop getting photographed having sex with a KGB agent in Moscow. God. Johnson told Robert McNamara when he was secret- Secretary of Defense, mm-hmm. and so they all know that this guy is a closeted homosexual. And that he's been photographed having sex with a KGB agent in a Moscow hotel room. Takes all kinds. But then Allsop gets paranoid that Johnson is tapping his phone. Right. Um, This gets back to Johnson. Allsop told Bill Moyers when he was the White House press secretary that he believed Johnson was tapping his phone and spreading gossip about his personal life in order to attack him. When Moyers reported this to Johnson, Johnson ordered the Attorney General, Nicholas Katzenbach, to make sure that there was no such wiretap in place. And he said, I'm as innocent of it as I am of murdering your wife. (laughs) Who says that? You know how much I love Lyndon Johnson. Like, Lyndon Johnson (laughs) used to invite journalists into the Oval Office and then would be taking a shit in the toilet with the door open while he was conducting the interview. There was that one story, I can't remember... Which journalist it was, right? But somebody who had written something critical about Johnson and the war. Johnson, you know, uh, rocks up to where there's this press gathering, points at the guy, tells him to get in his jeep. Then they drive off somewhere right. into the middle of nowhere. This guy thinks he's going to get whacked. <laughs> Johnson gets out, whips his dick out, takes a piss on the guy's shoes, then gets yes. back in the jeep, drives back, and just tells him to get the fuck out of the jeep, like. Right. Yeah, Johnson was like a complete <laughs> he, he fucking lunatic. He, he don't play. Yeah, he don't play. But I'm still convinced that he he knew about the Kennedy assassination ahead of time too. Anyway, like yeah. also like this whole thing about his uh, homosexuality uh, in, in the 1970s, the Soviets sent the photos of him fucking the guy in the hotel room to several prominent American journalists mm. to try and get them to destroy yeah. Allsop. Right, and uh, they refused to run it. I mean, these days it'll be all over TMZ, but back then, you know. Well, my take is the only thing worse or better 
then an American communist is one that takes it up the ass. I think that's something we can all get behind. So, uh, no, good for him. He's living his best life, you know. But the fact that he's work, uh, was working for the CIA, not surprised. Not surprised at yeah. all. Yeah. But he's just writing all this stuff about, you know, already suggesting that oh. Mossadegh was yeah. secretly working for the, the Soviets. When none of that is true. But, hey, you know, yeah. he's a journalist. The truth, well, the truth doesn't come into it. But that reminded me of something. We said a couple of minutes ago that, as far as we can tell, Mossadegh had roughly 95, maybe even 98% of the people behind him. Basically, he was, you know, beloved, worshipped, idolized, whatever. If he said to the Iranian people, yeah, 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 the oil, we're going to handle that. You know what? Maybe communism isn't so bad. If he had wanted to lead the people in that direction, I'm not saying he would have been successful, but uh, he would have been more successful than most because most people don't have you know 95% of the country behind them. So if he wanted to be the asshole that truly was going in that direction, he probably could have. As far as we know, he wasn't. And yet the Americans are still, some Americans are still paranoid that that might be the case. So again, the, the American... What what did we say before? The Americans are wearing the communist-colored glasses, and Truman can't see anything else. Well, I'm not sure Truman is convinced that he's a communist, but um, certainly by the time they get to the Eisenhower administration, Mm. the Americans convince themselves that he's working with the communists, or at least that's the story that they're pushing publicly to sort of support. They, they They don't admit to the overthrow, but... To, to support his overthrow, right. get the U.S., the Western public behind it. But speaking yeah. of the communists, I said before the Tudor Party, the Communist mm. Party, right. believed he was a British stooge. Then they changed their view a few months <laughs> later and des- decided he was an American stooge. Oh, make up your fucking mind. That his plan was to get rid of the British sure. and replace them with the Americans, sure. which for the Tudor Party was a greater sin than complicity with the British because – the United States at this point was seen as the enemy of the Soviet Union, therefore the enemy of the world's proletariat, yes. therefore the enemy of uh, the Tudor Party. And they started running press campaigns and street demonstrations against Mossadegh and the, the National Front saying that they were stooges of the Americans. Jesus. Now, documents were later discovered when the AIOC took over the oh, – sorry, when, when Mossadegh took over the AIOC's office in Tehran, mm-hmm. they found documents at Seddon's house mentioned right. before yes, yes, that revealed that the AIOC was aiding the Tudor Party's press <sighs> campaign what? suggesting that Mossadegh – was in league with the Americans. Good. So, God. yeah. The British were suggesting that he was a communist stooge. Right. The Americans are suggesting later that he's a communist stooge. Mm-hmm. But really, the British oil company was working to support the co- real communist <laughs> stooges, the Tudor Party, to paint. Mossadegh out to be an American stooge. My eyes just crossed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. So no one knows what the fuck is going on except for Mossadegh. The British yeah. were yeah. working with the communists sure. to sure. destroy Mossadegh's reputation by painting him as an American stooge. Jesus. Hey, you do what you got to do. So the Hague 
didn't work. The British are pissed off. And I think it was um, Morrison, the foreign minister, who literally, literally went to the House of Commons, got on the floor, and he said, the situation in Iran is becoming intolerable and that the Royal Navy was lying close to Abaddon and would be ordered into action. So do what we want or we will force you to do what we want. You pick. Either way. I, I can do either one. And so Truman's uh, really convinced that this is going to end up in a war. And, yeah. uh, you know, bigger concern for him, I think, at this point is that it's going to split the alliance yes. between the United States and Britain. Yes. Uh, and, you know, they're the two main allies against the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Oh, yeah. If they get split up, this is a this is a big issue. What Disaster. it means for yeah. NATO, what it means for the United Nations Security Council, Absolutely. et cetera, et cetera. It's a big deal. Yeah. So Truman decides to step up his efforts at fixing the situation. Thank God. And he writes to Mossadegh suggesting the Americans are going to have to get more involved in this. He's going to send Avril Harriman to Tehran to sort of play a role of mediation between the Iranians and the British. Now, Harriman, as we know, as people might remember, was probably still fucking Winston Churchill's (laughs) uh, former daughter-in-law, Pamela. She was married to Churchill's son. Harriman had been fucking her for a long time. Although at this time, I think she was living in Paris with Gianni Angeli, the Agnelli, sorry, the Playboy heir to the Fiat Empire. But right. he was probably still flying in and out. They, oh, yeah. He ended up marrying her decades later. Right. Max Hastings, uh-huh. Boris Johnson's old boss, um, uh, British uh, former media um, editor and, and historian. Uh-huh wrote about Pamela Churchill. She was described as having become a world expert on rich men's bedroom ceilings. <laughs> that is the best. <laughs> yeah. Great line, right? A world expert on rich men's bedroom ceilings. So she She's only a had the one, all the rich guys. She's yeah. only had the one position. That's fine. No judgment here. No judgment here. Yeah. But before he goes to Iran, yes, Avril yes. Harriman meets with Atchison, McGee, and Sir Oliver Franks. They all agree the situation's very dangerous. Yes, exactly. And and again, um, Harriman is. We're making jokes, but Harriman was Harriman was respected. Uh, uh, by a lot of people in the world, uh, former Secretary of Commerce, Governor of New York, uh, diplomat to uh, Britain, diplomat to uh, ambassador to Soviet Union, director of the Marshall Plan in Europe, and he knew the Shah. So this wasn't this wasn't this wasn't uh, Truman being desperate. This was Truman going, okay, time for the big guns. If anybody can do it, Harriman can. And so he's going to go. You know, a letter is going to be written by Truman, and it's supposed to be put in um, uh, the Shah's. Or Mossadegh's hand, and hopefully Mossadegh's hand, Mossadegh's hand, and hopefully we can get this going. Yeah, I mean they're they're basically worried at this stage that the British are going to use any justification to invade. <laughs> exactly, and exactly. then the Soviets will get involved. That Mossadegh might call the Soviets to get in, and, and it's going to go. be that's the show. Yeah, it's going to blow up into an entire thing. Nuclear war, exactly. But, yes, yeah. The British find out that Truman's sending Harriman. They're furious right. that the Americans are getting even more involved and not in a way that's giving them their full support. Yeah. So 
Morrison, the foreign British foreign minister and Shepherd, their ambassador, made some remarks to the press that they weren't inviting the Americans to get involved <laughs> and they should just stay the fuck out of it. <laughs> then Ambassador Grady, the US ambassador, took Truman's letter to Mossadegh, read it out loud to him. When he got to the section about taking the uh, court in The Hague seriously, yeah. Mossadegh apparently collapsed into laughter for a full 30 seconds. Can you picture uh, the guy goes, excuse me, sir, I have a letter for you. And he goes, no, no, you read it to me. So Mazadek's just sitting there and the guy's Grady's reading the letter, gets to that part. And this old guy, did we say that he was in his 60s, 70s? I can't remember. This guy probably 70s at this point, I think. kills himself laughing uncontrollably for 30 seconds. And so Grady's like, well, that didn't go the way I thought it was going to. So and then Moss, the boss once he finishes laughing and once he finishes, you know, getting his wind back, he trashes the United States. He goes to town. He goes, you once were known for upholding principles. You broke away from the British Empire yourself. And now what are you doing? You're being a little British bitch. Nobody likes little British bitches. I don't. Fuck that stuff. And the speech was so intense, Grady didn't even have the opportunity to bring up the idea of Harriman visiting. So... 30 seconds of laughter, fuck you, you, I don't respect you anymore. And so there's not even a discussion of a meeting of Harriman. But Grady tells Atchison what happens. Atchison is pissed. He tells Grady to go back Get to Mossadegh back in there. Yeah, and convince him right. that he needs to accept the visit, which he does. Yes. Harriman arrives in Tehran July 15th, 1951. His welcoming committee a 10,000 Iranians with death to Harriman signs at the airport. But here's the best point. Right. Who's behind the death to Harriman signs? The Tudor Party. (gasps) The Communist Party. Right. Supported secretly by the British. God. To try and paint Mossadegh out as an American stooge. I'm going to need an evidence board with pens and yarns of string because I'm sorry. I cannot keep all that straight in my head. There's layers, Jerry. Layers. Layers. (laughs) Uh, And that's the end of The British Accounts Part 15. We'll be back next time with more stories about the British being cunts and then the Americans being cunts on top of it. Descended across the continent.